Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Collect and Spec podcast, the podcast all about the world of collectibles, technology, and entrepreneurship. I'm one of your hosts, Zakil, otherwise known as Rainy Day Collectibles Online. And with me, as always, is my co-host, Chris, otherwise known as Wolf of Tinstreet. How's it going? It's going all right. How's your weekend been going, Zakil? Good, good. Uh, and it's even better because... <sighs> in the continuation of our community spotlight series where we talk to people of various different backgrounds in the world of collectibles. This is another episode that I'm very, very excited about. And we have Sean from the Reserved Investments YouTube channel. How's it going? Good. Thank you so much for inviting me. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, so I think I was introduced to your channel similarly to Chris uh, through Discord. Someone had found your uh, you know, YouTube channel, I think just kind of doing some dig or pardon me deep dive and digging into the collectibles world what uh can you tell us your genesis story and kind of background about how you got into collectibles absolutely my name is sean cermic i actually started out in the antiques and collectibles trade at the age of 12. i grew up in the same town that i live in right now boyertown pennsylvania and boyertown pennsylvania is an interesting place it's kind of a suburb of king of prussia in philadelphia and as a result, it has a rich cultural history because not only are we like less than 40 minutes from Philly, literally, but we also have a lot of the Amish, the Pennsylvania Dutch around here. So one thing that we're known for is both rural and city areas. And ironically, there's a lot of collectors that reside in this area. Um, Antiques Capital USA is considered to be in Adamstown, Pennsylvania, which is literally less than an hour from my house. So growing up, I was exposed to a wide range of different and interesting people who collect antiques and collectibles. So I just picked up on it at the age of 12, my parents were taking me to antique marts, flea markets and the like. Well, I started to get to know a lot of the hardcore dealers, a lot of the people that are really active in the trade. And they kind of took me under their wing and they tried to show me how the trade truly operates outside of the hype. So I had an interesting exposure to everything on pop culture collectibles, all the way up through hardcore antiques, artwork, antiquities. I was getting all this exposure and knowledge. So I just started soaking it up like a sponge and I started learning the business myself. Then when I went off to college, I started to major in business, economics, finance, and it all came together. And I said, oh my gosh, this all fits. It's amazing how you can take the antiques and collectibles trade, apply economics to finance to it, and get a better understanding of how these markets work, how a lot of the markets are hype driven, how they operate almost just like Wall Street, except there's one bonus, which could be a pro or a con, depending on how you look at it. Most of these markets aren't regulated. Mm. So you can kind of make the market work any way you want it to if you have the means. And that's where I really started to apply this data and say, well, what can I learn? What's the market telling me? So I had all this knowledge and in 1995, when I graduated high school, eBay came on the scene and that's what really caused everything to just blow up. I started a company called Electro, Electro Games. I got into selling pre-Nintendo video games because at the time, back in 1995, if you mentioned vintage video games, everybody assumed you meant pre-Nintendo because Nintendo was too new. It was only 10 years old at this particular time. So there was this massive speculative bubble where people were willing to pay like 150 bucks for a mint condition Atari with 20 common games. So I would go to all these flea markets and I would get this stuff and I would just flip it online. And I used to tell people this market doesn't seem stable to me. 
it's just, it doesn't seem truly organic. And the excellent pre-Nintendo era of video games lasted from 1995 all the way up to 2005. And by 2003, 2004, most people saw the writing on the wall where the next bid boom was going to come with post-Nintendo stuff. And that stuff was going to be considered vintage by that particular time. So it's interesting how some of these segments of the collectibles market keep moving. So that's really where I got my start, where I cut my teeth, per se, was really with eBay flea market. So it really was 1995 that I got out there and really was able to get exposure. Very cool. Awesome. So uh, how would you describe your current relationship with the world of just alternative asset classes like collectibles, antiques, antiquities? I have a love-hate relationship with it. <laughs> and the reason being is I, I love, I truly have a passion for this stuff. And I don't think sometimes that comes through on my channel because I'm spending so much time dealing with speculative bubbles or finance, economics, or even like teaching people the difference between some of these markets. So a lot of people look at me and I've been criticized because they look at me and they say, well, you're just in it for the money. That's not true. I have a passion for all this stuff. I'm a collector as well. So I have a love-hate relationship with it because I have a passion for it, but I also know the insides of the markets, and that's what scares me. They're not as stable as they appear, and I think some people give false credibility to the markets as a result of that. The market's going to do what the market's going to do, but ultimately, with no oversight, it can be manipulated. It can be changed, and all these markets do change at some point going forward. Most of these markets start off speculative. If they're lucky enough to stick around for 20, 30, 40 years, they become established. If they're lucky enough to gain a foothold into the trade of not only just collectibles, but on the antique side, after 100 years, they become hardcore antiques. So it's interesting to watch the progression of some of these items. Like even right now, people are still paying a lot of money for antique toys that are over 100 years old. The difference is the speculation's gone. So people your age, even my age, they're not looking to that and going, well, this is great. I can invest in this because they're more on to the speculative collectibles because they're the collectibles that are most volatile. So they love buying them at the peaks and then hoping that the, the price goes up and then they can sell at a high price point or it can justify their purchase. So that's why I have a love-hate relationship with this. There's too many people coming in that are just seeing this as a panacea of investing not looking at the basics, not understanding that there's a lot of people also manipulating these markets. Like when we talk about WADA graded video games, video games in general, even Pokemon, all these markets are being manipulated to a certain degree. And what I try to do on my channel is I try to shine a light onto that and just say, well, these are things that you should watch for. Mm -hmm. um, and I've, <clears throat> pardon me, I think you've done a very good job of that. I've been, again, like binging all of your videos. I'm like, this is some very high quality <laughs> content. Um, I'm hoping many of our listeners do the same. If anyone is, anyone out there is interested in, in the grand scope of everything, including collectibles, antiques, and antiquities, please do check this channel out, hit subscribe, right? Get, show them some love over there because it's very, very, uh, it'll be very much worth your time. Um, just going off of what you just said as well, what are your feelings about the recent frenzy over the past two or three years of, you know, people in niche, niche communities, whether they're trading card games or, you know, even like things like uh, Mont Blanc fountain pens and like watches, Rolex watches, Patek watches. Uh, and then even, even over this past weekend, over the past couple of days, I'm sure Pokemon has, has been on your watch list. We've at least got a lot of attention. Um, how do you feel about these niche communities now? kind of expanding into the general populace and 
really, I guess, just the, the price is skyrocketing. I think it's both good and bad. It's great for the long-term exposure. I'm going to be very honest. You know, there is some validity here. I don't want to state that I'm all gloom and doom or I'm all stating, oh my gosh, these markets are going to eventually crash. These markets are never going to go to zero. I want everybody to understand that point. There's a lot of people that criticize my content and say, well, you're, you're stating that Pokemon, Magic the Gathering, video games, it's all comparable to Beanie Babies. No, it's not. It actually does have some organic collectability. Beanie Babies did not. But overall, speculative bubbles all start and end the same. It just depends on how long they remain in speculative territory sometime in the middle. Like when we look at what happened with graded coins, graded coins in the 1980s were in a massive speculative bubble to the point where if you bought an average graded Morgan silver dollar back in the 1980s, graded by PCGS, graded by NGC, and you sold it today, you would lose money. That doesn't mean that coins are a bad investment. It means you bought at the height of the market. So that, tying this back into your question, that's what worries me about today. I'm seeing that a lot of these markets are hitting peaks. And people, rather than looking at them realistically and saying, at some point, these markets have to at least stabilize or come down at least 10 to 20% in value, maybe they will go back up. There's no saying that they can't, but there has to be a correction at some point. I don't think the average person getting involved in these markets realizes that. They're looking at it like, wow, I bought this Pokemon card for 20 grand. Now it's 30 grand. It's going to go to 40, 50, 60, 70. It's going to keep going up. And I don't think they're prepared if they can't afford to pay that 20 grand for what they paid on that card. What would happen if that card goes down to 10,000? Now you're going to have a frenzy of people trying to cash out of the market. And that's just as bad. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, I want to give credibility to the fact that the internet is doing what the internet is supposed to do. It's bringing people in to a lot of these collecting categories. And I consider that good. Don't get me wrong. They're getting exposure. It's good. But I think people need to take a step back and just analyze, why am I buying this item? What do I think is going to happen over the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years? Or if you're one of these guys that are buying this item, hoping to flip it and double your money in six months, you have to take a step back and go, is that feasible for that pattern to continue with some of these items? In my opinion, it is not for the long term. Uh, you briefly mentioned Beanie Babies. Can you give us the the two minute overview of how that specifically differs from a kind of a lot of the modern day things that people would consider to be collectible? Absolutely. Beanie Babies were one of the most successful mass produced scarce items in the antiques and collectibles trade. Beanie Babies came out in the 1990s. It was made by Ty who was a very eccentric, wealthy, business-driven person who came out with these stuffed toys that pretty much had no viability. They really had no purpose. They were just stuffed toys. So he wanted an interesting concept to market them. So they would be sold in Hallmark gift shops and the like for like five or $6. And what he did was he says, you know what? We're going to release some of these particular items and we're going to quickly retire them within six months to a year, year and a half at most. So what happened was when they first launched, it was like, oh, look at this cute little toy that has a plush tag. People started buying them. People started hoarding them. And then what really put Thai Beanie Babies in the stratosphere was eBay. The internet was new on the scene. So a lot of people, they didn't have any exposure to the antiques and collectibles trade because in the pre-internet era, the market was very fragmented. If you wanted to buy or sell, you had to go through a dealer, you had to go through a flea market, you had to go through an auction mart. 
you didn't have the type of online camaraderie, or I should say camaraderie and also animosity that we have today <laughs> in the trade, where you can log on to a, you know, a collecting forum, a news group and flame somebody because heaven forbid, they have something that you're jealous of, or you <laughs> want to buy, or they're selling something for an insane amount. You want to correct them because you don't think they should have a right to sell it for that amount. You didn't have that back then. So a lot of people saw it was happening and they were posting on eBay and other sites. Well, look at this. You can buy this rare item. This is awesome. And it just caught on. So people started throwing money at these little stuffed toys and nobody bothered to question, well, it's great that this item's going from six to 20 to 40 to a hundred bucks. What's the utility of it? Where did this item come from? I talk a lot on my channel about organic collectability versus mass produced scarcity. Beanie Babies are a prime example of mass-produced scarcity. It has no utility. It came out of nowhere. And that's why if you go back to that era, you can find articles written by everybody from Terry Cobble to Harry Rinker, which are collectible experts in the trade, who commented on the frenzy and said, this is ridiculous. At one point, the bottom's going to fall out due to the fact that there is no organic collectability to these items. They were marketed to be sold as collectibles. That's why whenever you look at mass-produced collectibles, even what's happening right now in modern era Lego, when you hear companies, we're going to retire this item in six months, a year, two years, or Lego sets that are being retired soon, you have to be a little bit cautious as to why is it being marketed that way if it truly is a collectible item that has a lot of demand and a lot of value. Now, it's not to say, again, that Lego is going to go to zero. Not going to happen. Lego is a very expensive children's toy. But it wasn't meant to also be hoarded in mass and kept factory sealed to be flipped later online. And that's what's happening. So the parallels are there. What happened with Beanie Babies, it was the right product at the right time with the, I'm going to say it, the right naivety of the collecting base. And that's what caused it to catch fire. And what happened was because of the company that was handling it, they knew at some point the bubble was going to pop. They took full advantage of that. And then when people tired of a lot of these things and they said, you know what, this really, I don't know, they're just going to keep making them and making them and making them. What's the point? That's when that mentality spread across the collecting community and the speculative bubble popped. It's no different than tulips, tulip bulbs being sold hundreds of years mm -hmm. ago. There was a speculative bubble for them. Same concept. Mm -hmm. That's I, I would have never pieced together that it was really just like the introduction of just the internet and the collectibles market kind of creating a perfect storm there. So I'm, I'm already learning here. Um, so uh, we've kind of touched on this a little bit, but what inspired you to make your, your YouTube channel? I mean, you, you've discussed that you've been in this industry for a number of years now. So what was kind of the, the I guess, just the inspiration for starting up the channel? I'm going to be 100% honest with you. I was always against, I, I used to always say this, I will never be a YouTuber. I will never have a social media account. I will never write for any publications in the trade. And for literally 20, 25 years of my time in the antiques and collectibles trade, I was able to avoid all that. Then what happened was eBay started launching this thing and they don't really promote this anymore. But if you have an eBay account, there used to be a thing called eBay Guides where you could write about topics that you were passionate about. Mm -hmm. So I started writing about the fundamentals of antiques and collectibles, and I never expected it to catch on, ironically. Well, a lot of people saw my work and they started reaching out. Well, you should write full time. You should try to get into writing 
in the antiques and collectibles trade. So 2012, I was diagnosed with celiac disease. If you don't know what that is, it just means I can't eat gluten. I have pretty much an autoimmune reaction to gluten. So I'm pretty much gluten free. So I spent like six months recovering from that disease because it took me literally six years to get a diagnosis. I had all health effects. And in 2012, I said, you know what? This really shook me to the core because I got diagnosed with celiac disease. They thought it was much serious. I said, I guess I should at least reach out and see if there is any body out there who is interested in my work. So I reached out to Antiques and Auction News and they responded right away. 2013, my first article went into print and I started becoming a columnist for them. And this was after I said, I'm never going to become a columnist. I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to put my name out there. I don't care. Well, after that, I had people reaching out to me, Sean, do you do any type of consulting? Can you help a friend of a friend who has this stuff? Then I had people on Wall Street reaching out to me going, hey, you seem very knowledgeable. Can you help me where to go for rare coins or art or other pieces? So then I started to become a part-time consultant in the trade. I did it on the down low, didn't advertise any services. Well, I guess around 2014, 2015, I was active on forums. And on the forums, I kept running into what I call the speculator mindset where people were posting, I'm going to buy this item. And if I buy it today, and even if I pay $3,000 for it, based on previous growth, this item is going to be worth $150,000 in 20 years. And I'm sitting there reading these posts and my mind is going, where are you coming up with these numbers? <laughs> it's almost like you're just, this was a comic book collecting forum, no less. So it's almost like you're taking the overstreet price guide. And if they say comic books went up 10% per year, you're multiplying out 10% per year for the next 20 years into the future, thinking that you're going to pay $3,000 for something and it's guaranteed to be worth six figures or more at that time. There's no fundamentals to this. So I started getting into a lot of interesting disputes with other collectors. And I always tried to be respectful. Really, I did. But I could see it was falling on deaf ears. A lot of the people had more of the speculator mindset. So by 2016, I pulled myself away from the forums and focused solely on writing for Antiques and Auction News and other blogs that was publishing my work. But what happened was this all came to a heat again. I don't know if you guys are familiar with Limited Run Games. Limited, no, limited run games makes digital only releases in physical form for a lot of the newer Nintendo, PlayStation, and Microsoft consoles. Now, what they do is they make a limited number of these games. So if the game's coming out in digital only form and they're able to produce it, they'll produce 3,000 copies at most for certain releases. Other releases, they'll use an open pre-order system. And when that pre-order window closes, they'll make no more copies. So again, there was this hype-driven mania for people to speculate in these items. And now video game forums were starting to light up with people thinking, well, gee, if this limited run game only has 3,000 copies in existence, that means it's on par with something as rare as stadium events or a very rare Nintendo game. So obviously, if I buy a factory sealed copy of the latest limit run game, this is how the speculator mentality works. I'm going to have something on par with a very rare Nintendo game that's going to be worth hundreds or thousands of dollars in the future. So I appeared on video game collecting forums and I said, here's the flaw in your logic. Stadium events, certain Nintendo games, they have organic collectability. Nobody saw them as collectibles when they came out. They bought them. The market just went up naturally due to demand. There's market manipulation there. Don't get me wrong. But there is a lot of organic demand. 
with limited run games, they make a great product. Don't get me wrong. I encourage a lot of people to buy their products. I buy their products, but I buy them because I enjoy them. What a lot of people are doing, they're buying them and they're putting them away as investments. And that's where I said, this does not make any sense. So this went on for about two years. Then I pulled myself off of a lot of these collecting categories. And I just said, I'm waving the white flag. I'm done trying to talk common sense. So Rudy came on the scene, Rudy without investments in 2015, 2016. And I was a fan of his channel. I would watch from the beginning. And what I was hoping was, I remember I was one of these people who was watching Rudy from the beginning going, please talk about other collecting categories. Please talk about speculation so I don't have to anymore. I want to retire. I just want to disappear in the back. <laughs> I was like one of his first subscribers, and I'm hoping that he would go into this direction. Well, Rudy, don't get me wrong. He has a great level of knowledge on his channel, but most of it, I would say 90% of it, is geared towards Magic the Gathering. So I guess I was getting frustrated in around 2018, 2019. And I said, okay, I'm going to have to do something. I'm going to have to break my rule. So I said, what if I try to do a YouTube channel and I do it kind of as a joke? I'm just going to do a couple of videos. I'm going to record them at one o'clock in the morning. I'm going to be surrounded by pop culture collectibles on my table. And hopefully no one will notice too much. But those that do, if they watch the video, they'll at least get something out of it. So I never expected the channel to grow. So I did like two videos. I think my first one was on, I think, limited run games. And I think my other one was on comparing the grading scale for video games of VGA graded games to WADA graded games. Because video game rate grading mm. was really soaring at that particular time. And I filmed them at one o'clock in the morning. I mean, my eyes, I look horrible in those videos. And it's sad because <laughs> today they have like 5,000 views each. So <laughs> it's really sad because I've always wanted to redo them as a result, but I never got around to it. Mm. So I put out these videos. And slowly but surely, I started to get comments and people would leave comments on my channel saying, you know, this is really a unique perspective. There's not too many people talking about this. This is actually quite good. And of course, I had the troll comments. We all get the troll comments where people come on and like, okay, dude, whatever, you know, okay, that's your opinion. That's fine. But I just had to carry on. So I said, after those videos got out and they each got several hundred views each, I said, you know what, let me film a couple of more and let's see what happens. So I filmed a couple of more, waited a couple of weeks, and lo and behold, people started talking about me on collecting forums. A lot of YouTubers got a hold of the content. And what really helped me was Pat the NES Punk. Pat the NES Punk found my material six months out, and he started to put it on his channel. And a lot of people were like, oh my gosh, there's this dude out here talking about investing in video games, collectibles, and all this other stuff. And they said, well, gee, I'm going to subscribe to his channel. So before I knew it, I already hit the thousand subscriber threshold within like seven or eight months. So I considered that pretty well. So I was like, okay, I must be on to something here. So that's why I stuck with it. It was never meant though to get past 500 subscribers just between you and anybody who's watching. <laughs> very honest. I honestly, several times I wanted to delete the channel because it does get frustrating sometimes when you try to put out this content. And people come on your channel. And of course, I've had to learn how to deal with trolls. I know nothing about video editing. I know nothing about really how YouTube works. I'm not a fan of social media. So a lot of my videos, believe it or not, are done in one take. If I don't get that take 
done properly, I will actually record the video from beginning to end all over. Oh, those are like 30 minute videos too. <laughs> so there are some of those videos. That's why I tell people, there's like people that are coming to me going, can you make a video on this? And it's like, I'm 70 videos behind right now. I would love to. <laughs> got like six months or I got to learn editing somehow. So I think if my channel continues to grow, I'm going to have to take some type of editing class because I know nothing on YouTube editing or anything. I suck at it completely. I'm not a techie. I'm actually on this Zoom video, I'm on a Mac. I'm a Mac person. I am not a PC person because in my opinion, Macs are easier to use. <laughs> That's the way it is. It is true. Yeah. yeah. So that's so, what pulled me on YouTube. So what are, the, what are the goals going forward now that, I mean, now that you have this following and now that it, it is growing as quickly as it is, uh, are there any like long-term goals or are you just playing it by as we go at this point? I am trying to put together some long-term goals. Um, there for a while, I honestly only thought I would release one to two videos a week. I'm actually trying to get up to three and four and stay at that level at least. Mm-hmm. Now that people have at least responded positively to what I'm trying to do. And there are a lot of videos, a lot of topics, a lot of fundamentals that I've yet to discuss, and it's sad. And that's where I feel bad because I started talking about the fundamentals of the antiques and collectibles trade, talking about speculation. But what happens is something will happen, like a Pokemon card will sell for 200 grand, or something will happen in the realm of Magic the Gathering or video game collecting, and I'll get pulled in a different direction where I got to comment on it. But I know it's going to take away from the time that I have to create the content that I'm really trying to promote on that channel. So I still have to go in that direction because a lot of people are looking to me. They're like, Sean, you got to talk about the Magic the Gathering Walking Dead crossover, or you have to talk about this person who paid a fortune for this Pokemon card. So I get pulled in different directions. And that's what's very hard because my channel isn't just geared towards one collecting topic. It's geared towards the whole trade as a whole. Mm. So that's what really makes it difficult for me. That's where if I could probably go back and do it over again, it would possibly be where I would just stick to like, this whole channel is going to be devoted to pop culture collectibles, or this whole channel is going to be devoted to antiques. Because it would have been easier to focus on just one core collecting category, or at least a market at large, rather than looking at them all. But I already went down this rabbit hole. So I'm kind of stuck in that direction. And I do enjoy it. I'm going to be very honest because (laughs) I like talking about antiques, art, and those videos, believe it or not, don't get a lot of views. Like if I do a video on the high-end art market or what wealthy collectors are collecting, I'm lucky if the video gets between 500 and 1,000 views. A lot of people just are not into that. But I think that's what's missing from YouTube in my opinion. YouTube is full of a lot of these hype-driven channels where it's, oh, if you would have bought Pokemon three, five years ago, you would have this much money right now. Let me show you my Pokemon man cave and show you what you should be buying. I, I never wanted to do anything like that because I can kind of see through through that. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's not that it doesn't appeal to me. It's just that you through it. As far as the world of collectibles, antiques, and antiquities, um, how many different categories do you participate in? And I mean, maybe if you will as well, can you give us a general overview of how you define each of those categories? Sure. In my opinion, there are subcategories and then there's main categories. So let's say that we look at coins. There's international coins, there's U.S. coins, there's ancient coins, there's colonial coins, where if you're in the U.S., that's completely different than coins that are made by the U.S. Mint. So you can break up all these collecting categories, especially on the antique side of the trade, into subcategories. 
So when I look at how many categories I am involved in, I'm going to be very honest, it's in the thousands. It is insane. It wow. really is. <laughs> Even if you look at, like, if you collect, like, I love art glass. A lot of people probably don't know that from watching my channel. I think I've done maybe one video where I allude it to Tiffany Glass. I love Tiffany Glass. Well, Tiffany Glass is only one segment in the category of art glass. When you get in the art glass, there's vintage, there's antique, there's modern, there's contemporary. So there's all these different subsets, all these different artists and all these different styles. And in my opinion, when I analyze a market, I have to take that into account. So if I'm looking at the market and I'm analyzing it from the aspect of Tiffany Glass, I also have to analyze it to what the modern contemporary market's doing. Mar the market, like for, if you ever heard of Dale Chihilly, he's a well-known glass artist of modern times. So that's where this gets complex. So I'm really involved at any given time into thousands of different collecting categories, regardless of what aspect of the trade I'm in. It may fall under a main genre, whether it be like, like if we talk sports cards, there's vintage, there's modern, there's antique. When we go back all the way to, you know, your Honus Wagners and the like. So there's different subsets of all these markets. And I think that's what causes a lot of confusion in the trade. Like if you tell me you're investing in Pokemon, well, are you investing in vintage Pokemon? Are you invested in modern era Pokemon? Are you investing in graded cards, factory seal booster boxes? Yeah. You can break it down further. And that's what causes confusion. You can't just go on YouTube and say, I made a lot of money investing in Pokemon. You should do. Well, what are you what are you buying? What you know what I mean? Yeah. It's too vast. Of those of those different categories, what would and what's the best way to ask this? What would your top two or three by I guess depth of knowledge or depth of expertise uh, be? If you had to choose kind of your top two or three, what would they be? I separate it out in the four main categories of the trade. This is how I break it down. So I look at collectibles, antiques antiquities and art those are the four main categories that i applied the antiques and collectibles trade overall my knowledge is mainly on the collectibles and the antique side of the equation and everything that comes in between that now are there things i ever come across that i have no idea what i'm doing yes that <laughs> does happen and any anybody in the antiques and collectibles trade who tells you different they're, they're not very knowledgeable because they're not willing to admit that they don't know something that's really the key here because you're going to come across items that were made like around the civil war, or if you're talking antiquities, literally there are items you can come across that are thousands of years old where you look at it and you go, I have no idea what was the person on drugs who created this <laughs> back in, you know, BC times. What was this used for? I don't know. So I have to bring in experts. Same thing's true with art. I love art, but I'm not, I consider myself having moderate knowledge of art. I am by no means an expert. And I tell people that if I'm going to look at a painting or you're coming to me for advice and you want to drop 50 grand on a painting, I'm going to also be consulting an expert in your behalf because I don't want my name being put out there where, well, Sean Cermak said that this painting is original and authentic and it's worth $50,000. I'm not comfortable with that. So I'm going behind the scenes. I'm reaching out to experts going, hey, can you help me with this? And you help verify this. So if I my name gets attached to this in some way, I'm protected. Mm -hmm. So it just depends. But I break it out to those four levels. That's really how I analyze it. Uh, so, <laughs> what role do collectibles serve? And this is going to be a like a big like just topic. But like, when is it financially appropriate for someone to start looking at collectibles as an asset class? I would always prefer that the person be established. Now, to be fair, 
I understand everybody has a different definition of established. I can give you mine, but everybody out there has a different definition. And some people look at my definition and they say, that's much too harsh. So what I will tell people is, as long as you're not putting 100% of your discretionary income or all of the money that you have to invest in assets in the collectible trade, you're okay. So I have no problem if somebody wants to start out where they put 60, 70, 80% of their money devoted to investing in mutual funds, index-based funds, financial assets, and then taking that other 20, 30, even 40% in some cases and playing around with collectibles. But you cannot realistically build a long-term portfolio of wealth that is going to appreciate in value on par with the stock market by solely going into the collectibles trade. It's not going to work unless you're a dealer, unless if you're building a business that you are dead set is going to grow over time, or if you're somebody who has a massive education in economics and finance. That's really what it's going to take. And even then, it is still risky. Um, if you look at guys like Rudy, and again, I don't want to speak for Rudy at all. I just know him from his channel. He also holds corporate bonds. He holds real estate. So all of his money is not in collectibles. One of the things that I get a lot of comments on my channel is, well, Sean, look at Rudy. Look at what he's doing. And I have to explain to people, go back and watch his videos. He is not 100% invested in collectibles. That is a myth. And most of these other established people are not either. They either came from the finance realm and just had a passion for this stuff, or they were lucky enough to start a business and it caught on. And that's how they got into the trade. So you can, don't get me wrong, you can diversify assets in these markets, but you have to start small unless if you're financially established. Now, I know what your next question is going to be. How do I define financial establishment? This is what people don't like when they hear my answer. I consider financial establishment to start at having a net worth of $100,000 and having most of that net worth invested in financial assets. So if you are at that point, you are at a good point to start diversifying in the antiques and collectibles trade. Now, when I say diversifying, I'm saying like five to 10% of your portfolio. So if you have a hundred grand, five to 10% is five to 10,000. Would I see that people are making a mistake? They're shooing off financial assets. They're shooing off getting out of debt. And they're coming into these markets with a credit card, or maybe they have like 500, 600 bucks saved max, and they're spending it all in collectibles. And they think that they're going to be able to build wealth in the collectibles market going forward. It doesn't work like the stock market in most cases. That's the problem. And that's a major difference between these two markets. Something like an S&P 500 index fund, based on the overall growth of the economy and also the financial markets at large, that can grow exponentially. That's how a lot of people make their money in the world and in America. Well, with collectibles, there is a limited capacity for growth. These are very niche markets. Even if we're talking about rare coins, I always get accused of being biased towards antiques and always hating on collectibles. That's not true either. I love both categories because you have to invest in collectibles if you're going to invest in these markets because that's where your speculative growth comes from. So that's where you can buy an item for 50 bucks and watch it go to $250. On the antique side of the trade, it's more devoted to long-term growth. So that's what a lot of people lose sight of. If you're going to the market and you're going to spend $5,000 on a rare coin, I got news for you. If you do the research, that coin's not going to go up in value. On the same token, that coin's not going to go in the next six months to a year to $10,000. The fundamentals aren't there. It already, the easy money's been made on that particular item.
So if you're going to diversify in that, it's more to diversify away from financial assets and away from real estate. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, with that said, a uh, couple financial specific questions here. And one that is actually not on our list, but I would be interested to hear your opinion on. Um, as I'm kind of, as I'm approaching what I would consider to be quote unquote portfolio optimization of my collectible portfolio, uh, instead of betting on any individual trading card game, uh, and specifically in the graded markets, I've actually spent a lot of time looking at PSA and the parent company to PSA is Collector's Universe. We've seen a huge uh, explosion since March of people, both based on the back of Pokemon boom and the back of you know vintage Yu-Gi-Oh boom, um, incredible graded, uh, incredible run of graded submissions. And PSA stock has essentially 4X'd in that time. I bought shares even a couple of weeks ago and they were like, they're already up over, I think almost 20%. Um, how would you describe investing in the financial markets associated with collectibles, whether that be Collector's Universe, PSA, or, or maybe a Nintendo or uh, by extension, Microsoft, although the valuation of Microsoft versus Xbox is a little off, but how would you kind of um, you know, go about that? It can be a good strategy. It just depends when you buy in. Like I bought in on Nintendo back in 2015, right before Pokemon Go came out. And this was at a time people were predicting, well, people who didn't know any better. Nintendo's dead. Oh my gosh, the Wii U isn't selling properly. And it's all doom and gloom, not realizing. Even I admit, even though that I talk badly about holding great at video games for the long term, I will tell people, Super Mario, Zelda, Metroid, the value of those franchises is never going to go to zero. There's a lot of money there. So I bought Nintendo stock back when it was like $15 a share. And I think now it's about 68 or 69. So today, would I tell somebody to buy that same stock? It depends what their strategy is because Nintendo really had a massive growth boom. PSA, to use that as an example, with Collector's Universe, they also had a massive growth spur. Now, I don't know if you're aware of this, but what I like about Collector's Universe, they also own PCGS, which is the coin grading company. Mm. So they own a difference, uh, many different um, companies under that umbrella. So I do own Collector's Universe stock. Do I own a lot of it? Is it part of my core holdings? No, but I do own like 50 to 100 shares of it for that reason. So yeah, you can get in, and this is one good thing about the collectibles marketplace. If you do get in the collectibles marketplace and you have an interest in these companies, you can learn about stock market investing just by doing what you love. Where if you're a huge comic book guy and you love Marvel, well, Disney owns Marvel. You can't get any more blue chip than that. And Disney's been hammered because of the pandemic right now. They've been hammered what? How, what's Disney down? I think 20, 30 percent, if not like more. Yeah. yeah, because of the you can't go to a fleet. Well, you can go to the theme park, but let's be honest. You really want to go ride space, <laughs> social distance, you know. I mean, even Donald Duck's not coming to see you. I mean, he's wearing a mask too, standing in his little cave or whatever. So it is a good exposure to a lot of these markets if you get in and you say you know what what if i bought stocks in the companies that produce a lot of these collectibles even i think funko pop is traded publicly now would i buy in the funko pop no it's too speculative for my taste i'm going to be very honest i don't like the products they produce i don't like the company as a whole it's just my opinion so you do bring up a great point you can get in that way and learn it and in a lot of cases i'm going to be very honest a lot of speculators that don't have knowledge as to how these markets work, 
they would probably be better off buying shares of Collector's Universe, shares of Nintendo, shares of Disney, or even shares of Microsoft, rather than speculating on the products that these companies produce by and large. So we, we kind of discussed uh, like hype-driven speculation, but what would be like a, uh, an approach to evaluating whether an increase in price is due to hype or actual just legitimate appreciation? It comes down to organic collectability versus mass-produced scarcity. That's really what it comes down to when you analyze these markets. I always use this as an example, and you're probably going to love this example because it's a Magic the Gathering example. Everybody can relate. Back in 1993, when Magic the Gathering hit the market, they would play test the game amongst people who were invited in to sit down and play the game. And they distributed alpha cards. And these alpha cards, you could pick up the pack and you could take it home with you if you wanted to when you were done play testing this game. Well, ironically, 95% of all the people that play tested Magic the Gathering that sat there and played it, whether they loved it, whether they hated it, whether they were indifferent to it, they never took the cards with them. Now, today we know alpha cards, especially in near mint condition, sell for a fortune. Let's be honest, they do. Even the most common cards you can still get, if it's a PSA 10, you're still going to get probably 100 or more for that particular card with few exceptions, even a basic land. Well, why didn't anybody pick up the cards knowing that and take them with them? Because back then, there was no hype. It was just, oh, look at this new game that's coming out. We don't even know if it's going to catch on. So that had organic collectability. That's why today people are clamoring to get their wonderful Alpha Edition, Black Lotus, Power Nines, whatever it is, because nobody bothered to hoard them back in the day, even with magazine publications coming out like Scry and all these other listing the values on every different month. People still were really not hoarding them for the long term. That's an example of organic collectability. When we look at mass-produced scarcity, if you look at what Wizards of the Coast if you look at what Nintendo, if you look at what a lot of these companies are doing today, whether we're talking Funko Pops, Amiibo, limited edition items, double masters, VIP items, all this stuff that's coming out where they're using all these gimmicks to get people to buy them, that's more hype driven. That's mass produced scarcity. So when a manufacturer creates a product and says, this is going to appeal to collectors, that's something you have to be wary of. Your, your, your immediate mind should go to, okay, this is something that may not have long-term potential. That doesn't mean magic in itself is going to go to zero or all these products that they're producing today are ever going to be worthless. It just means as a result, because they're promoted with hype, because they're using mass-produced scarcity to put these products out in the market, collectors are going to go out. They're going to buy these items and they're going to hoard them in mass and they're going to keep them factory sealed. So as a result, 10, 20, 30 years down the line, there's going to be much more of these in existence than your Alpha Edition Black Lotus game card that was sat sitting alone at a play table because somebody didn't have the foresight to go, well, gee, this may be something in the future. I'm going to pick this up and put it away, except for that one oddball person who is probably the black sheep of your family or my family who <laughs> sits in his room all day and you know what I mean? Yeah. Fandoms, well, what if this is worth money or what if that's worth money? We call that in the trade, I hate to say this, I don't mean to use this as a derogatory term, but hoarding syndrome. Really, there are people in this market that are hoarders that think everything's gonna be worth money. Now, if one of them happened to go to one of those magic play tournaments and they picked up one of those cards and they still have it, they possibly would have done really well today. But that wasn't the norm. How would you, um, 
Uh, one of the things that I that you've talked about on your channel, and uh, we talked a little bit about precast, is the fact that you're also a consultant in this field on top of uh, being a kind of a content creator online. And in your experiences of working with people of different backgrounds and wealth profiles, what do you think is the biggest difference in mindset between you know the the people who have very large portfolios and people who are you know, building their portfolios or just have been flat for you know, forever for, for their entire time? That is a great question. Thank you for asking this question. This is one of the most important questions and a lot of the points that I try to make on my own channel with this. There are several differences between somebody that comes to me that has, and I'm just going to use this as an example because I've worked with people with 10 million plus net worths. And I've also worked with people who make under $50,000. I don't judge. It's what you want to do and what's realistic. When somebody comes to me, what they're basically coming to me for is, is this a realistic plan of what I want to do for the goal I want to achieve? Some people come to me and I have people on both ends of the equation that come to me and just go, well, Sean, I just want to buy this because I have a passion for it, but I don't want to lose money. And obviously I can't guarantee you're not going to lose money, but what I can do is look at the market for you and I can say, okay, fundamentally, if you buy this item at this price and you want to hold it for 10 years, it should at least hold its value in this market. You're investing in a stable market. Or on the other side of the equation, I can say this market's way too speculative. I can't even tell you what the price is going to be 10 years from now. So that the point that I'm trying to make is the main difference is somebody on the wealthy side of the equation will tend to understand risk versus reward better where it's the person on the lower end of the spectrum or the mid of the spectrum who will come to me and say, I'm going to buy 500 copies of this 25 cent reserve list magic gathering card, because if it goes to 50 cents, I'm going to double my money. And I have to explain to them the reserve list has been in existence now for how many decades. There's a reason why that card is selling for a quarter. So you got to look at the equation properly. So the biggest thing that I think the difference is between the small fry and the large potato that's coming into these markets with a lot of money already has a net worth is number one, the people on the higher end side tend to already understand economics and finance. And they already look at things through the lens of risk versus reward. They're not going into the market half cocked buying items that are full on speculative. They are buying items with a purpose and they're able to analyze properly what are the risks of buying this item? What's the opportunity cost? What time value of money am I giving up for holding this for 10 years? I've said this earlier on one of the videos I just did on my channel. If you're spending $20,000 on an antique or a collectible and the opportunity cost of that is putting that $20,000 into a stock that pays a 5% dividend, you must realize if you hold that item just for two years without inflation encountered at all, assuming that stock, let's just assume something where is not realistic in Wall Street, but let's assume that stock stays at that same price. I mean, it goes up and down, but the first year you're going to invest, it's $40 a share. And coming out of it, you know, it's going to at least be $40 a share. That 5% a year on that $20,000 investment nets you $1,000 per year. So if you are holding that particular item for two years, that's $2,000 just in investment income on that $20,000 investment that you would have had to made in the collectible side if you're putting $20,000 into a Pokemon card or something else. 
another thing that a lot of the people who are well-versed on the financial side of the trade, they understand the cost of selling this stuff. One thing about antiques and collectibles, and it's never brought up, and I understand all my critics will say, well, Sean, I can sell at a Facebook group. I can sell at a collecting forum. But you got to understand, if you want top dollar for your items, the money right now is at auctions. Auctions charge a commission to sell these items. And this is something that one thing that I love when I work with some of these high profile people, they already have contacts in the trade or they're using me to negotiate contracts because they know once they sell this item, they're going to pay a seller's commission. Whereas some of the people on the other side of the trade, when you try to explain that to them, they act like it doesn't matter. Well, even if you're paying only just a 10% seller's commission, that has a massive effect on your gains short-term or long-term. And that's never spoken about on any of the hype-driven channels. And it drives me nuts. Where do you see the future of the hobby going in the next five years in terms of technology, finance, playability, et cetera? And perhaps we need to get a little bit more refined there, but just a general overview. Of the antiques trade and collectibles market or? Antiques and collectibles. Let's do antiques and collectibles. I think, and it pains me to say this, I'm going to be very honest, but I think that antiques and collectibles are going to be a massive asset class going forward. And why it pains me for that is I think that this harks back to what happened in 2008, 2009. During the financial crisis, I have a lot of people that are coming to me and they go, hey, Sean, I don't trust stocks. I don't trust the financial markets. I don't trust Wall Street. So therefore, rather than put just 5, 10, 15% of my portfolio in collectibles, I want to put 20 or 50% in. Now, to be fair, you can do that if you have a full understanding of these markets. You know how they work, and you've been successfully investing in them over the long term or even the short term. But overall, the three easiest ways to build wealth in any capitalistic society, and this is what I really have to state, is the equities market, meaning the stock market, Investing in your own business or yourself, meaning if you're somebody out there, you want to go to law school, it may be worth, if you're young enough, paying to go to law school because once you become a lawyer, you're, obviously your income is going to go up. The third way is through real estate. Now, I don't know about you, but everything that I read in the financial markets, nobody says, I made my fortune investing in collectibles. There's very few people that can claim that because if you can make your money building a fortune in collectibles, you can do it in finance, you can do it in real estate, and you probably have the ability to build your own business. So the question that I have is, if you can build a fortune in collectibles, why aren't you already doing it in any of these three other asset classes that are actually easier to build wealth in than the collectibles trade? So I just put that out there because I really think the key turning point was we can go back even further. We can talk about Reaganomics. I'm not going to get political on your channel. I won't do that to you. But if we go back to the 80s, when Reagan came in and instituted Reaganomics, and the tax plan that he utilized favored a lot of the wealthy people. Well, the wealthy people on Wall Street, they wanted to spend money on art, luxury collectibles, antiques, antiquities. Well, they were able to go after the top 1% to 3% of the market. They weren't just buying... Beanie Babies, you know, your run-of-the-mill antique that you come across at an antique mart trying to invest in, claiming that, oh, this is going to go up in value. They went after stuff where there was fundamentals due to rarity, demand, condition, where these people knew the market obviously is limited. If you want to buy a 
original Leonardo da Vinci, obviously you're going to pay millions of dollars. But they knew even in the 80s, if I pay millions of dollars of that, the market is there long term. It's not going to go to zero. It will always go up. So this really started in the 80s. And then Main Street wanted to turn. Well, in the 1990s, Main Street got its turn with the advent of eBay, with the advent of all these collectible sites, Beanie Babies. And now you had companies like Marvel, DC, um, Marvel Trading Cards. I'm sure some of you guys remember all these companies taking advantage of the little guy by promoting mass-produced scarcity. That's where this all started. Well, ironically, a lot of people who are involved in the trade today weren't alive back in the 1990s to see all that. So I get a lot of younger people, people younger than me, people who are in their mid-20s, early 30s, who tell me, Sean, the stock market's a scam, and I have to correct them. It's not a scam. The investor who takes an uncalculated risk is going to get punished by the market, regardless if he's investing in Beanie Babies, collectibles, high-end antiques, stocks, real estate, whatever it is. It's usually the risk investor that's risky. It's not the market per se. I know a lot of people that made money on Beanie Babies. Well, how did they do it? Why everybody else lost? Simple. They got in, they sold at the highest price that they thought market was at, and then they cashed out and they walked away quietly. Now you have people, if you Google anything on the internet or if you go on YouTube, Beanie Babies are making a comeback. You know, all these hype driven clickbait titles. Beanie Babies are not coming back. <laughs> <laughs> not gonna happen one other question i have before we wrap up here um out of curiosity what are your thoughts about the current <laughs> economic future of the united states <laughs> and that's a very broad question but i'm gonna answer it i think the biggest problem and i said this before and a lot of people agree with me and i like this talking point wealth inequality is probably the biggest problem facing america and it's gotten to the point where it's not really being addressed politically and i don't think going forward we're at a point where it's going to be addressed politically at this particular point because right now you have two different ideologies in the united states and literally there's more than two again i won't get political on you there's more than two but overall a lot of what people view as being very liberal or social in the United States, as in socialism, is actually nothing more than centrism. It's not really on the left, per se, of the equation. So I think that people are being misled into everything that is not free market is communism or socialism. And this is a major problem that I see in America today, where people, again, it comes down to economics. Like when I went to high school, when I went to college, I had professors that would explain to me, even in textbook examples, the difference between capitalism, socialism, communism, a mixed hybrid system, which is really what the U.S. is, and how this functions. Today, I don't see that being brought up enough, and that's what's really hurting America. Every time we go to address some of these issues, it's either called out as something of which it's not, either socialism or communism or price controls or going against the free market system. And I don't think a lot of these people who would benefit from some of these policies realize that they're only hurting themselves. Because when, at the end of the day, when I look at America, America is divided fundamentally over really one core ideology, and that's money. It all comes down to money. Regardless of how we split it, regardless of how we define it, it's really the haves versus the have-nots. 
And I hate to say that because I myself don't like to be pulled into that category or that discussion, but you kind of have to look at it from that standpoint, especially over the last four years. What really are we trying to achieve here as a nation? And at some point we all have to come together, whether you're on the right, whether you're on the left, whether you're somewhere in the middle, whether you're undefined, at some point we really have to work together and solve these problems. And right now, unfortunately, the broken system that we have, I'm gonna just state this, is actually benefiting the top one to 3%. Because if we can't come together to create laws that we all agree on that protect the little guy or even maintain a certain level of livelihood, what really are we trying to achieve and who is this benefiting? And that's really what we have to ask. So that's where I feel. That's really the core of the issue is wealth inequality overall. Can these problems be solved? I think so. I think every nation goes through these growth spurts or these times of division. I'm just seeing it a lot in America compared to like when I go over and visit Europe. When I go over and visit Europe, they're looking at us and they're going, what the heck are you guys doing over there? You guys are fighting worse than when we were fighting the revolutionary war against y'all. What, what are you doing? You know, man, we're eating tea and crumpets over here. and We're laughing at you. And then, of course, I bring up Brexit and they're like, we don't talk about that. <laughs> we all have our problems, right? I mean, at the end of the day, we all want our independence. But it's how we solve these issues going forward. There has to be a realistic approach. That's my problem. And this kind of goes back to how information is transferred in the year 2020. There's a lot of very bad information out there, right? Not just in the antiques and collectibles trade, but also politically, also a lot of conspiracy theories that are floating around that really shouldn't be given credence. But thanks to social media, thanks to the fact that we have a news media, if it bleeds, it leads, it gets talked about more than facts, more than an actual discussion of the issues. And that's what really hurts me as somebody who loves America but also struggles with trying to get people to realize that it really all comes down to wealth inequality. Until we solve that issue, I don't see anything else getting better. And that's what's sad. I, and I agree with my everything you said, I think there. Um, what role do you foresee collectibles playing in your life over the next 10 years, um, if any? Because, you know, I'm, I'm again, I've, I've, you've noted a couple of times that you do have you do invest in, in different markets. And I know that this is your job. Is this something you plan to do for the rest of your life? Is this something that, um, you know, have, you have, I'm assuming, have you fallen in and out of love with collectibles? How has that journey been? And, and kind of, you know, what do you forecast it to be? Oh, it's always been a part of my passion. I'll always collect something. I'll be very honest with you till the day I die. I would venture to say either I'll be buried with something or <laughs> they'll be taking it out of my house. People, family members will be auctioning it off. I have left instructions, believe it or not, if anything happens to me, there are instructions sitting in a safety deposit box. So they know what auction houses to use and how to dispose of some of these collectibles, but they will always be a part of my life. What I mean when I say that is there's certain collecting categories that really aren't for me. Like I'm 43. I'm going to be 44 in two months. And I use this statement to try to get younger viewers of my channel to at least understand that their life is going to change. So if you like Nintendo or Pokemon, Magic the Gathering, whatever collecting category you like, you will most likely always like that item. But you're going to get to a point when you're 40, 45, going into your 50s, 60s, where, okay, if I buy this item today, 
how many years do I really want to invest in it or hold the item? And is it worth it long term? You know, if you're in your 20s right now and you're buying factory seal booster boxes of Pokemon magic, because you think over the next 10, 15 years, this modern stuff is going to go up in value. Even if you're right, where's your life going to be then? So it's all relative. That's why I'm more when I invest long term on stuff that I enjoy. It's more in the antiques and art side of the trade anymore. Collectibles, I love them. I love video games. I love Pokemon. I love Magic Gathering. I love vintage toys. I love vintage comic books. But overall, when I buy them, I always have my finger on the pulse because I know if that market reaches a new high, I'm going to probably want to cash out because I don't want to be left standing with an item that I paid like $3,000 for. And 20 years later, it's only worth 1500 or two grand, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So it's difficult for me because I look at everything from a financial perspective. And I also look at things from the perspective of the items that I have nostalgia for. But those two different opposing viewpoints are always in conflict with one another, if that makes sense. Hmm. So it's very difficult for me. That's why I'm glad that I'm passionate about coins and currency, because that's something that I look at long term, where even if I don't sell it in my lifetime, my family members can sell that. And I know it's going to still be collected 30, 40, 50 years out. Hmm. Awesome. Um, before we get to the last question, uh, thanks so much for coming on the cast. We really appreciate it. If our listeners want to find any of your content, uh, as far as the YouTube channel goes, or any of your writings or contact you directly via, you know, wherever the social media or email or whatever, uh, where would they go about doing that? Sure. On YouTube, my channel is called Reserved Investments, and that's two words, Reserved Investments. You can also email me through Reserved Investments, one word, at gmail.com. That's my main contact information. I do do consulting in the trade. Um, if you are interested in reaching out to me for consulting services, just send an email there and I will respond in kind with rates, whatever you need. Um, just give me an idea of what you collect, your age, your basic background, and then pretty much I can put together a demographic and we can go from there. We can set up some time to talk if you're interested. Um, if you want to read my columns, I do write right now pretty much full time. Like every two weeks, my column appears in Antiques and Auction News. You can read my newest column every other week on antiquesandauctionnews.net. That's their website. Now, keep in mind, this is a hardcore antique paper. <laughs> so the website's not fleshed out. Like a lot of people go to this website and they're like expecting it to be this massive thing. Now, it is a smaller publication. They're great to work with, though, because they don't they don't edit my content anyway. Whatever I write, they will publish. And I love having that freedom because I did reach out to other firms to write for them. And they're like, well, if we approve of the content or if we want you to write an article on one set collecting topic, would you do it? And I'm like, well, I like to have free reign over what I put out. I don't want to be boxed in. Like one thing that I'm most proud of, none of my YouTube channels, nothing that I do is corporately sponsored. Even if I give you advice on what auction house to use, that comes from my own advice. I'm not being paid. The auction house is not giving me any type of sponsorship deal or any backdoor deals. It's all coming from my own knowledge in the trade. And I've said this before, if you ever use a consultant in the antiques and collectibles trade and they are tied to a specific auction house or a specific company, they are not a true independent consultant. That's one thing that I will put out there. Um, I really, believe it or not, don't have a Facebook page devoted to my channel as of yet. 
because again, when I started it, I didn't expect it to get past 500 subscribers. <laughs> so I honestly thought it would have been deleted by now. So that's one thing that I know Pat the NES Punk tells me I should do. He's always, why don't you have a Facebook channel or a Twitter account at least attached to this? We, nobody can find you. So that is something that I may work on in 2021. But those are the main ways to contact me. So you have the email, you have the YouTube channel, and you have my writings. Amazing. Perfect. Uh, what is one piece of advice you would give to someone aspiring to use collectibles as a way to preserve or grow wealth? I would tell them to start slow, learn the market. Don't put all your money in collectibles. That's the main thing that I tell people. It is truly amazing how many people will come to these markets. They'll put everything they have and then go into debt and some into these markets and they'll hope that it pays off over the long term. You should not be hoping and praying in these markets. Unlike financial assets, and I get this, one of the core differences is collectibles are fun, right? We all have a passion for this stuff. You need to keep your passion in check, especially when you're investing from a financial perspective. Another thing you need to note is unlike Wall Street, if you analyze a company, if you analyze a mutual fund, if you analyze a stock, there are core fundamentals there. You can look at earnings per share. You can look at the assets that the company has. When it comes to collectibles, you're pretty much in a speculative market. Nobody needs a Pokemon card, just like nobody needs a Leonardo da Vinci original painting. Nobody needs a rare coin. It does have an element of speculation that I don't think people really realize. And as a result of that speculation comes always market manipulation. And that's another thing that I always tell entry-level collectors. Understand whether you agree with it or not, any collecting market you get into is going to have some degree of market manipulation, intentional or not. If we look at right now what's happening with graded video games, if you log on to Heritage, there's a reason why Heritage, no disrespect to them, because every auction company does this, promotes a lot of these items that are selling for hundreds of thousands of dollars right now on their homepage. When you look at it from that standpoint, they have a right to do that because they're in that business, but that is a form of market manipulation. It's, well, look at this item sold for. So when little Timmy logs on to that page and he sees that, he goes, well, gee, if I spend $2,000 on a video game, here's one that's selling for 100,000, it's obviously a good investment. That's not the conclusion you should come away with with a lot of these markets. You really have to look at them from a critical eye and see what they really are. And what they are is, again, it comes down to speculation. And I don't care if you're on the collectible side of the trade. I don't care if you're on the antique side of the trade. I don't care if you're one of these crazy people that study antiquities from 3 BC. You know, it, it doesn't matter. All these markets can be manipulated. If there's more than one collector in that market, and chances are there are, it's being manipulated in some form. So you must realize that. And everybody is guilty of market manipulation. If you yourself go on a collecting forum, if you hype up something that you bought, even if it's not intentional, if you say, you know what, I really love this item, look at it, I got it graded, came back a PSA 10 or a CGC 9.8, I'm so happy to have this in your collection. Rest assured, there's going to be somebody out there that's going to be looking at that going, wow, I would love to have that in my collection. And as a result, he could possibly enter the market and unbeknownst to you, you pulled him into the market. So that's why these markets are growing in mass. It's basically what's happening in social media. It's basically what's happening on the internet, on collecting forums. So we are really in, and I'm gonna sum it up with this. We are really in a new frontier here for the collectibles trade.
And that's why even me, I have discussions with a lot of top tier experts in the trade. And I'll even tell them, where do you guys think this market is going for collectibles? Like you guys ask me, I'll ask them that question because I want to know their answer. And they're like, Sean, honestly, it's overblown. But at the same time, we're in uncharted territory. So it is fascinating. And I think you both will agree with me on that. It's fascinating to be alive at this time in the collectibles trade because every other week it's a record-breaking sale or it's this famous person getting in, buying you know this card for 200 grand or a booster box for 198,000. It's insane. It's just mind blowing. Hmm. And I think at the end of the day, people lose sight of the value of money because we see all these wealthy people come in and it's like, well, dude, that dude just spent 198,000 on a booster box. I would love to just have, you know what I mean? People say, I would just love to have that money to blow on that. So there has to be some, how do I want to say this? Some moral standpoint where you're able to stay grounded when you enter this market. Because I've always said, and I'll leave you with this. This is a great thought. I always said, there's two businesses in the world that are completely superficial. The first is plastic surgery cosmetic surgery. <laughs> the second is the antiques and collectibles trade. Because really, when you look at it, a lot of people, especially when I deal with people who have like net worths of 5, 10, 15, 20 million, I'm going to just state it, guys. A lot of these people, don't get me wrong, they're good people. But a lot of them are very arrogant. Some of them come off very narcissistic, because they don't realize how lucky they are to be able to go into this market and just write a check for 600 grand and buy a painting that's going to sit in storage. It's not going to even be in their house. They're not going to live with it, which just blows me away. They're just going to pay 600 grand, put it in storage and go, well, when I pull it out from storage 10 years from now, I can probably get more for it because that artist's works are very rare. That's their mindset. It just blows me away. So that's why I say you're dealing with a lot of egos in this business. Really? It, it, there's no way around it. Awesome. Well, Thanks so much for coming on. You didn't have an ego <laughs> during this interview. <laughs> Thanks so much, Sean, for coming on the cast. Um, again, my camera worked at all during this. I apologize. If you can't see my face next time, if I ever do this again with you guys, which I would love to come back. You can yeah. Well, well, oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> we'll attempt to, I told you I'm horrible at technology. So I didn't know mm -hmm. if I had to push a button or anything so you could see my face. <laughs> no worries. No worries. <laughs> um, please. Probably laughing. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. Uh, please check out Sean on Reserved Investments on YouTube, as well as all the other contact information that we listed. Uh, this is another episode of the Collect and Spec podcast. I am one of your hosts, Akil, otherwise known as Rainy Day Collectibles Online. And with me, as always, is Chris, Wolf of Tin Street. Um, and we will see you next week. Cheers, guys. Thanks.